in the nation's history, not to mention one that involved one of the president's closest friends and a man who was, until a month ago, Secretary of the Treasury. Saudi Arabia, meanwhile, was insisting that all U.S. forces leave its soil immediately, and OPEC, outraged by the U.S. strikes in Iraq, was threatening an all-out oil embargo unless war reparations were made to the Iraqi people and pressure was brought to bear on Israel to allow the creation of a Palestinian state. The president recoiled at the thought of an ultimatum from countries he had just saved from nuclear, chemical, and biological annihilation. He wasn't about to submit to blackmail, but he was painfully aware of the risks he was running. Even now, his hand-picked diplomatic team were on their way to Jerusalem. McPherson, feeling quite vigorous at 60 until a team of Iraqi assassins nearly took his life the month before, was beginning to feel his age. He swallowed a handful of aspirin and washed it down with a bottle of water. His head was pounding. His back and neck were in excruciating pain. He needed to sleep. He needed to clear his head. The last thing he needed was an oil price shock reminiscent of 73. So much of the road ahead was foggy, but one thing was painfully obvious. The horrific battle of Iraq wasn't the end of the war on terror. It was just the beginning. When ordering a hit, Jibril preferred the anonymity of an internet cafe. No one would bother him. No one could trace him. And at less than 25,000 rials an hour, about three U.S. dollars, it was far cheaper than using his satellite phone. Tehran alone boasted more than 1,500 cyber shops, which had exploded in popularity ever since Mohammad Khatami was elected president in 1997 and gave the fledgling internet sector his blessing. The hardline religious clerics continued to be wary. In 2001, they'd forced 400 shops to close their doors for operating without proper business licenses, breaking Islamic laws, and trafficking in Western pollution. They'd insisted that the government deny anyone under the age of 18 from entering the shops. But that just made the idea of an electronic periscope into the West all the more alluring, and web traffic shot up faster than ever. The bulletproof sedan eased off the main boulevard. Mohammed Jabril told his driver to drop him off at the Caspian Cyber Cafe on Ingolab Avenue across from Tehran University. A moment later, he logged on and sent a half-dozen cryptic emails. Next, he pulled up the homepage for Harrods of London and quickly found what he needed. Harrods chocolate batons with French brandy. Twelve individually wrapped milk chocolate batons filled with Harrods fine old French brandy made from the finest Swiss chocolate, 100 grams. He hit the Buy Now button, typed in the appropriate FedEx shipping information, paid with a stolen credit card, and left as quickly as he came. Now all he could do was wait, and hope the messages arrived in time. The eyes of the world were now on John Bennett. A senior advisor to the President of the United States, Bennett was the chief architect of the administration's new Arab-Israeli peace plan, the front page top of the fold New York Times profile the day before, Sunday, December 26th, had just dubbed him the new Point Man for Peace. The media was now tracking his every move, and the stakes couldn't be higher. The president was eager to shift the world's attention from war to peace, to rebuilding Iraq, and expanding free markets and free elections in the Middle East. The Pentagon and CIA insisted the next battles lay in Syria and Iran, but the State Department and White House political team argued such moves would be a mistake.
It was time to force the Israelis and Palestinians to the bargaining table, to nail down a peace treaty the way Jimmy Carter did with Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat at Camp David in 77, and the way Clinton tried to do with Barack and Arafat in the summer of 2000. Blessed are the peacemakers, they reminded the president, and the president was listening. Bennett wasn't so sure it was the right time or that he was the right man. He hadn't asked to be named point man for peace. He hadn't wanted the job, but the president insisted. He needed a deal, he needed it now, and Bennett couldn't say no. At 40, Jonathan Myers Bennett was one of the youngest and most successful deal-makers on Wall Street, and a guy who had everything. An undergraduate degree from Georgetown, an MBA from Harvard, a 38th floor office overlooking Central Park, a Forest Green Jaguar XJR for business, a red Porsche Turbo for pleasure, a seven-figure salary with options and bonuses, a seven-figure portfolio and retirement fund, a 1.5...